With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Lena Dawes about her book, What Are You Doing Here? A Black Woman's Life and Liberation in Heavy Metal, published in 2012 by Bazillion Points Press. Raised as a black child in a white household, something she suggests isn't that common, Dawes gravitated toward metal in the same way most kids become fans of any music genre. It spoke to her. But being a black woman obsessed with a genre dominated by white males provided numerous structural and cultural contradictions necessitating interactional negotiation. For one thing, while growing up, Dawes' black friends accused her of race betrayal. Black kids should listen to black music, R&B, soul, and funk. Angry black kids should listen to rap. The message coming from more traditionally oriented black people, writes Dawes, is that those who listen to metal or punk are race traders. They are selling out their heritage for a crack at societal assimilation. White folk, on the other hand, particularly those in attendance at metal, punk, and hardcore shows, are perplexed, to say the least, at encountering black fans in the audience. The title to the book, What Are You Doing Here?, aptly describes a reaction that Dawes and her black women cohorts regularly encountered at these shows. Place being women on top of being black and you have a perfect storm of otherness. The subjects of Dawes' books are seen as members of two communities as outsiders, as not belonging. And this is the point, writes Dawes. Being black women in heavy metal is a sociological contradiction that frees these women to be themselves, to be individuals. If rock music is about rebellion and the expression of individuality, then being a black woman at an extreme metal show is rock personified. The women of Dawes' studies face many obstacles to full participation in the metal and punk scenes of their fandom, and they break through these obstacles because they can, because like so many other fans, the call of rock is overwhelming. Fandom has, from their own perspectives, nothing to do with race or gender, and everything to do with being an individual, being yourself. Lena Dawes lives in Toronto, which is where I reached her for this interview. Hello, Lena, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. Um, why don't we start with your biography? Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, stuff like that. Okay. Um, I grew up in uh, Kingston, Ontario, which is about three hours. It's a three-hour drive east of Toronto, Ontario, um, and also grew up actually outside on the outskirts of Kingston. So I grew up in a very rural area. Um, I moved, I lived there till I was 18. As soon as I turned 18, I was like, I'm out of here <laughs> and moved to Toronto. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, since that time, um, when I moved to Toronto, I actually, uh, moved to Toronto to go to cooking school. Um, I wanted to be a chef. 
So I did uh, three years of cooking school, about a three, four-year apprentice uh, apprenticeship at a, a couple of restaurants, um, and got licensed as a uh, pastry chef. And then while I was doing that, I had always really been interested in um, social activism, social justice, anti-racist activism, and had been volunteering and taking some night classes as I was cooking. So as soon as I got my uh, papers, I just kind of decided that, you know, as much as I am passionate about food and cooking, um, I actually decided, you know, I wanted to go back to school and really try and investigate, you know, um, sociology and, you know, get a university degree and, and move that um, and move on with that in my life. I'm looking at a catalog for Bazillion Points books, and they actually have a book called Hell Bent for Cooking. Do you know about that book? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's actually it's, it's fantastic. I've had um, – Ian gave me a copy of that book a couple of years ago, and um, – it's 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 a it's an incredible book and the the recipes are amazing. Um, so you didn't have anything to do with that book though. N- no, but it was interesting because the author is from Montreal, so it was really cool to find out that she's you know not that far from me. Uh huh. <laughs> so so anyway, so you're you're in college and you're studying sociology in your story right now. Yes, um, I uh, you know went through got my undergraduate degree in political science and uh, sociology, and while you know all this time I was also kind of writing and just kind of doing. I started off doing a lot of rants. I mean, if there was some kind of injustice I saw in the newspaper, I would write a response. And uh, when I was in university, I wrote for the university newspaper, did some like long form essays on. Um, the reluctance of black uh, men and women in relation to uh, rock music, because I was always interested in that, and uh, also did some, you know, um, stuff that was concerned about race and racism in Canada. So uh, I did that for a while, and then when I graduated from university, I started uh, volunteering to write for a number of online uh, websites, uh, music websites, and uh, was doing a lot of hip-hop, and uh, R&B album reviews, did a lot of interviews with people. Um, and it was interesting at that point because I just thought I did it. I didn't do it for very long. I did it for maybe one or two years. I just got really bored and I got bored of the artist. I found that I was asking the same questions. There was nothing really interesting. And I would always wanted to write about metal. But for a number of years, I had thought. I'm black. I can't write about metal. Nobody's going to take me seriously. So it wasn't until um, 2004 um, when I uh, pitched and actually was accepted to do a presentation at the Experience Music Project uh, music conference, which happened back then. It was happening only in Seattle, Washington. And I wrote, uh, I did a presentation on black women in rock and had interviewed and did a little video and uh, was you know, really interested in talking to certain people who were, um, especially a lot of historical, it was like there's a lot of historical uh, basis on that, and uh, met Phil Freeman, who uh, was the editor or hadn't, I don't think he had, he was the editor at Metal Edge at that time, but maintained a relationship with him over the years, and in 2007, 2008, I started writing for Metal Edge magazine. Mm-hmm. So that was my dream job, um, just to be able to write for a metal magazine, because I just thought I would never do that, um, mm-hmm. you know, ever. So that's where it started. And then, um, you know, did an anthology for Phil. He was the editor of a book 
called uh, Marooned um, Desert Discs. Oh, geez, I just, I just, my mind just went blank. But he did a anthology called Marooned um, Island Discs. Uh-huh. That basically he had asked a number of music critics to provide an essay on an album that they would bring to a desert island if they were stranded on a desert island. So I chose Skin from Skunk and Nancy. Um, I wrote about her, wrote about the album Stush, which meant a lot to me at that time. And, uh, yeah, it was published. And through there and through that experience, I met Ian Chris from Bazillion Points. Uh-huh. And uh, with working with him for about four years um, the book was created. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, uh, race is an important part of your book. So, so let me ask you, uh, as a as a black woman, how did how did you get into metal? Um, you know, I always say that I got into metal like everyone else did. Uh, I grew up in an era. I grew up in the late seventies, early eighties, listening to AM radio. So, I think the first thing was is that being aware of a number of different musical genres that were being played and really not, you know, second guessing it. The main catalyst for me getting into metal was Kiss. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when I was seven or eight, I watched with my brothers and sisters, we watched Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, which was, (laughs) yeah, that horrible made for TV movie. But I was just fascinated with their makeup and they seemed exciting and dangerous. And I was just really, it just was an image that I couldn't get out of my mind. So for my next birthday, I asked my parents for a Kiss album and they got me uh, Kiss Double Platinum, which was a double album that came out in 78, I believe. So my first, my first record was Kiss Alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had that too. <laughs> so between my siblings and I, we actually, you know, eventually I think we probably collected, you know, not the whole, their whole discography, but right after that, they had solo albums. Do you remember how everything? I do remember that. Yeah, so my sister had one, my older sister had one, the Paul Stanley one at a school dance. And uh-huh. I think eventually we ended up getting, if not all of them. I remember Peter Chris, that one stood out to me quite a bit. So, yeah, I mean, it was just more about the imagery and what they represented to me in terms of this fearlessness that I became really enthralled with um, the band. And then from there, um, you know, my sister was, my older sister was, uh, her friends were listening to the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Violent Femmes. And I eventually found um, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, Agnostic Front, and just went progressively heavier and heavier and heavier as I, you know, became a teenager. At what point um, do you in your life recognize that it's unusual for a black woman to to be into to heavy metal and punk even? Um, I think it probably was when I became a teenager, like I was maybe in grade eight, we call it here, or um, even into the first couple of years of high school when I started. Because, you know, when I was about 11 or 12, I used to uh, collect Circus Magazine and Hit Parader. And they had in the back, they had these, you know, you could have pen pals and you could also send cassette tapes to people. So I had been, you know, corresponding with at least two, you know, guys and they were, you know, I was getting tapes back and forth and talking to them. And at one point, somebody, one of them had said, you know, what do you look like? 
Um, and I, you know, I just said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm 12 or 13 and I'm black and I live in, you know, Kingston, Ontario and never heard from them again. Um, then, you know, when I got older and I was talking on the phone to a boy who was a friend of a friend of mine who was going to another school and he was really into like this was. I guess it was even probably pre-Metallica, but, you know, he was, we were talking about the metal bands that were out back then, Black Sabbath, you know, whatever. And the same thing, he said, oh, let's meet at the mall on Saturday. What do you look like? And so I told him what I looked like on, and we were talking on the phone and he hung up the phone on me. Mm. And, uh, I was, I was really hurt, but that was probably the first indication where I knew that, you know, it wasn't, that common. I think he was so excited that a girl was interested in metal, <laughs> but he wasn't so enthusiastic when I was black. Mm-hmm. So I think then was the first indication. But I have to say that when I was in high school, um, I really had a lot of male friends that um, some of them were jocks, some of them were popular, some of them were, um, we used to call them greasers back then, or heshers. But I always had a rapport with men, white men, in terms of the music. Once they found out, you know, we, we wear our concert t-shirts to high school, and once they found out that I knew what I was talking about, and mm-hmm. that I was really interested in the bands and the music, um, I was really able to develop, you know, a, some friendships um, that really cross gender and cultural um, barriers because we had this passion for the music. So... And I hope you'll excuse some of my ignorance, but these are uh, questions I'm sure you've been asked before. Early in the book, you you say that you were adopted into a white family. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And actually, I'm a sociologist as well. I I teach sociology. Okay. And and I think an important part of your book is how you show that, that race obviously is a social construction or it's cultural rather than biological. So, uh, what importance do you think in your biography and your your being a fan of, of metal is growing up in a white family? Um, positive and negative. Positive is that my parents is my parents as my parents as people. Um, my parents um, based in the generation where my I come from a very musical family. So on my dad's side, there's a number of musicians, um, classical musicians, and music was always very, very important in our uh, our house. My grandfather um, was a musician and we took, you know, piano lessons and guitar lessons and bass guitar lessons and violin and I have siblings now Um, my eldest one of my older brothers and my little sister are professional musicians as long as as what my father is now also a professional musician so I was lucky enough in terms of uh, my parents really didn't care what I listened to they were really I mean I think they're a little confused and I know my father still says I'm you know I I don't exactly know what metal is but you know (laughs) but he but you know there was a respect there and so in that sense, I was very lucky that there weren't any kind of um, fa- familiar boundaries in terms of me listening to the music. On the other hand, I think in terms of race was I grew up also in an environment where it was very rural. Um, we had a lot of rednecky neighbors that some of them were not very uh, pleasant people to be around. And so I always, from the time I was five years old, I was very aware of race and I was very aware of that as a black person, 
I was not seen um, as equal as you know my brother, my my two um, older brothers, and my and my little sister. My um, older sister was adopted also. Um, she was adopted two years before me, um, and she's black. So. I, I always knew that there was a difference. I was very aware that my brothers were treated differently than I was and that in terms of the response from teachers and schoolmates and even, you know, some family members, there was a huge difference in terms of how we were treated. So instead of feeling sorry for myself, which, you know, I probably did at times, I was always very angry. I'm very, very angry because my parents never treated us differently, but the outside world did. And it was really hard to I I would never accept it. I just knew that I was never going to accept this treatment. And I knew that the treatment was wrong. So that really kind of got me into saying, well, I grew up in this environment and I really like this music. Um, But on the other hand, knowing that I was black and that, you know, also having a few black friends, um, in the area where I grew up, whose parents were just not happy. Like they didn't like the fact that I was into rock music. Um, the the black families thought that I was whitewashed. They resented the fact that my parents were white and thought there was something wrong with me. So I always got this backlash from the parents of my black friends where I was not accepted. So I didn't really feel accepted in either the kind of external white community, but also did not um, feel accepted among my black friends' families either. So I'm in the United States, and I'm, but I'm assuming that this rural area is a, a mostly white area that you grew up in? Yes, it was very, very, very white. Um, and, yeah. and your high school as well then? Yeah, there was only like four or five black kids in, in the high school. Uh-huh. And... Um, I guess you've already said though they uh, they tended to be accepting of your 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 musical tastes. Um, you know, it, it started. It, it was kind of weird. The first couple of years was tough. I mean, we got. I mean, there was a lot of racist behavior from my schoolmates in public school and high school. Um, but as I got older, you know, when I was like seventeen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, um, you still got that you know that attitude from certain people. But on the other hand, I was still able to cultivate these relationships with um, some, you know, these some white guys simply because of the music. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, I, it, you know, in hindsight, in some ways, I consider myself kind of lucky to have those re- those relationships based on music and to have someone say, oh, OK, well, you know what you're talking about. You're really passionate about it. Let's let's talk versus being completely dismissed. But um, because of my musical preference and also, more importantly, because of my um, ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of weird growing up. But I do have to say that I do consider myself lucky that I was able to have those relationships with men um, and, and be able to really talk about Metallica and is Rob Halford gay, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, whatever was going on in the mid to late 80s, you know. Right. So. When you moved to, to Toronto, I'm, I'm guessing things change. I'm, I'm assuming, I, I don't know much about Toronto, but there's probably a, 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 I keep wanting to say African American, but, um, black community in Toronto. And so you were probably able to, you know, uh, if you were searching, I don't know, uh, for other black people to hang out with. And in your book, you write about how, uh, um, they give you art, other black people give you a hard time for being into metal. 
Yeah, that was really hurtful. And I think that that was something that, I mean, I, when I, one of the reasons why I wanted so desperately to move out of Kingston was because I wanted to be within a black community. You know, I thought that I had this kind of weird fantasy that everything would, the rest of my life would be wonderful if <laughs> I, you know, lived within a black community because I just, I never felt that I fit in and I never felt like I belonged. But it actually, I found out very quickly that that was not the case at all. It was actually worse because, um, you know, based on the immigration system in Canada, there was a, there's a, at that time, the majority of black Canadians are from the Caribbean. And with that comes, um, you know, the culture and the music, you know, reggae, soca, hip hop, uh, not hip hop, reggae, soca, soca, calypso. Um, so if you didn't listen to that, it was used as a cultural signifier. So if you didn't listen to reggae or soca or calypso, then there was something wrong with you. You were not black. And I found that very quickly that because of my background being adopted and then the fact that I'd rather go to a goth club or a mod club or listen to The Cure or whatever versus, and I had no knowledge really of any Caribbean um, musical artists, that was seen as a strike against me. So there was a couple of instances where I had, um, you know, joined, I, I volunteered with this um, anti-racist activism group um, that was uh, very militant back then. And uh, once they found out that I was adopted, I was kicked out of the group. Mm. Um, and that actually happened again at another group where they said, oh, I'm not black enough to to volunteer for your organization. So mm. that was, you know, and it was very frustrating in terms of, you know, people looking at you weird and then thinking that you're weird. And there was really this, you know, I was very that was the first time I really kind of thought, well, it's just weird how people will like music is used um, as a way as, you know, a cultural legitimacy. And within the black community, more than I would argue any other ethnocultural community. Why is that? Why do we do this? Because as someone who spent was very passionate about equality and doing work to promote social equality, it just seemed like a slap in the face that I was being rejected from doing this work because of something that in some ways I can't control. Mm-hmm. So it was it was it was very hurtful. And unfortunately, to this day, it still is a problem, which is sad, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, let's shift gears just a little bit. Tell us about the music you're writing about, ex- what you call extreme metal. Um, right now, I would say that I just wrote something actually for um, Maryland Death Fest is coming up. It's in Baltimore, Maryland every year, and uh, it's a four-day festival that's happening at the end of May. So they have a festival booklet. So a good example is I wrote something on um, this band Paul Bearer. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a doom, well, some people call it funeral doom, but a doom <laughs> band out of um, uh, the East Co- the East Coast. I guess the West Coast. Yeah, Portland. Uh-huh. Portland area. Um, also, uh, like Weed Eater, wrote a little something on them. Obviously, Sleep, which is a big band, but still pretty underground. Um, I'm listening right now to the new Cathedral. You know, I guess bands that, I guess depending on your circles, I mean, my friends know who they are. Right. But I guess, well, I mean, my metal friends know who they are, but my non-metal friends have no idea, you know, because they're not played on the radio. 
um, you know, you basically have to really kind of search or know what websites to find, you know, information on these bands. What distinguishes these bands, though, from a, you know, more mainstream radio friendly metal? Um, I think it's more the, you know, I think that the music in some ways is more, I call it emotionally punishing. You're not going to get the melody. You're not going to get the catchy hooks. You're not going to get vocals um, that are in some ways clear and can be deciphered. I think there's more, and there's also an emphasis on um, kind of musical genre bending, where you have bands who are willing to take risks in, in terms of doing, let's say, death metal, but adding black metal or grindcore and just people who are kind of experimenting with various sounds and, and genres that you would not necessarily find within a band that is on um, top 40 radio. I think that like now there are metal bands who are um, will be played more often. Um, and, and those bands do emphasize kind of the chorus verse chorus reverse chorus, verse chorus, very melodic and also clear vocals, clean vocals, so people can understand them, more catchy. The bands that I'm more interested in are not interested in that per se. They're more interested in creating um, a piece of art that means something to them and really taking experimental risks in terms of the music that they put together. You either get it or you don't, but they don't really care if you get it or not, because there will always be an audience out there that will get what they're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although I, you know, I'm pretty sure what the answer is, what what is the the demographic for these bands? Um, I think primarily it's men. Primarily it's um, you know, uh, I can't even say white men these days because there's a lot of men of color who are um, listening to the music. But primarily it's a male audience between maybe 16 and, as I'm finding, 40, 50 years old. Um, people that are really have been into metal since they were young, and it's really part of who they are as people, and they're always interested and in searching for something new and unique or something that also kind of represents maybe something that they grew up in. So I would say primarily, obviously, there are women listeners and women within the, the scene as musicians, but primarily it's still men. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think uh, black men have a different experience in this scene than black women do? Well, that's a good question because recent, I mean, honestly, when I was writing the book, um, I thought that there was a huge difference. I was really thinking about sex uh, and sexism and sexuality. That's something that's really important to me and how a woman can present herself in the metal scene as more of an individual and not so burdened by um, the sexual stereotypes that surround black women in popular culture. However, in the last few months, I have been getting emails from uh, black male fans and musicians who are like, oh, thank God you wrote this book. I I really resonated with it. And they're resonating on issues of feeling alone, of being criticized by their families. Um, in terms of sexuality, that's not really an issue. And I would argue still that it's easier for males 
to get into the metal scene as musicians and fans versus women. But they're still, they still have, there's some commonalities in terms of feeling isolated and also just straight dealing with racism. They're just as, I mean, they're just as much as quote unquote victims as black women are. Um, but on the other hand, you do see more black male metal musicians in the scene than you do black women. And when you go to a, a show, do you see more black men in the audience than black women? Definitely. But I'm still not seeing a lot. I mean, I've still uh -huh. gone to shows where I'm the only black person there. Uh -huh. So, I mean, but still, you will see, let's say, two or three um, black, black guys who are there with their friends and no women. So it's it's still a bit of an issue in terms of I mean, I just spoke to somebody um, a week ago who's about, you know, he's in his late 30s. He's um, a metal promoter. But he was telling me that there was he was at his age was still having some reluctance in going to shows because he just didn't want the drama. He was afraid that. Somebody was going to say something and, you know, things were going to get ugly and he just he didn't want to deal with it. So there still is this reluctance from people um, to they don't want to be, quote unquote, the only one. They don't want to be stared at. They don't want someone to say something to them. So there's still really it's 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 really sad to hear that. But, you know, there still is this resistance. And do you think do you think there's a different experience in the United States versus Canada for black men and black women? Um, based on population demographics, I would say yes. Um, I've seen more uh, men at shows in the States than I do in Canada. In Canada, it's extremely rare to see a black guy at a metal show. And I mean, I, it's interesting, though, because I, I have to kind of backtrack for a second. Depends on the band. I saw Macedon, uh, I think it was two years ago. When they last, uh, she said it was for the Hunter tour. And, you know, Macedon is one of those bands that started off kind of underground. They're now signed to a major label. You, you might see the videos on whatever video, you know, television channel you, you have. So their name is out there. They're getting, they're getting mainstream media attention. So at that show, I actually saw a lot of black, I didn't see a lot of black people, but I saw maybe <laughs> Three or four black guys. I saw maybe three or four black girls. They were all very young, um, probably between the ages of like 19 and 22. This so is in Canada? This is in Canada. So huh. for me, when I saw that, I thought, okay, well, this is really interesting. But I said, I think it's because of the band where it's something more mainstream where their friends are probably listening to it and they're, they're turned on by it. And it's just a young thing for them to do. So it was great to see that. However, if you went to see Napalm Death, that's when you're not going to see no black people. You know, so it really I think that in that time, I was really happy to, to observe more people of color at the Macedon show. But it's also because Macedon has more of a name mm -hmm. um, in the mainstream media than some of the other bands do. But in the States, um, yeah, there's definitely um, more people. A lot of my interview subjects were American. Um, I had a really hard time trying to find people in Canada. So definitely there's more people involved in the States.
So, so given uh, as a transition, given the the lack of black women in this this genre, did you have trouble finding people to interview? Uh, at the beginning, I did because I started this in 2008, and at that I started doing the research actually in December of 20, 2007. And um, at that time, there was online. There was not very many websites that were specifically catered towards um, black alternative music or like black black folks who were into alternative music at all. Um, you know, I posted on Afropunk, which is the most popular site, which is obviously still going. I think there was another one that I tried, but I really I, I rarely got a response. Um, and that was that was frustrating. Um, through the years, when I started writing for Metal Edge and started getting to know um, metal publicists, music publicists, people in the industry, um, develop friendships with some people, they would start sending me emails saying, hey, I know this girl who lives in Chicago, and she's a photographer, and she's black, and I see her at all the metal shows. And people really helped me find people who they knew within the scene. Um and then I had some, um, you know, colleagues, music colleagues who weren't into metal at all, but they had come across people. So that's where it started to pick up. Now that the book has come out, mm-hmm. there's more people. I'm getting contacted by a number of women who are like, hey, you should have interviewed me. And I'm like, I didn't know who you were. <laughs> you yeah. know? So it was, but it was overall, I mean, over time, you know, it took me a, a while, but I'd say yes and no. I really, if it wasn't for the assistance of friends and colleagues, I probably would have been a bit, you know, it would have been really, really difficult. In Canada, it was just banging my head against the wall difficult. But, you know, over over time, it got, increasingly, it got a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, you spend some time in Chapter 3 talking uh, about writing, about the the kind of the history of rock and you make a good point about you know rock is really a, a black african-american music in the first place um uh so tell me a little bit about that um you write that as, as white people as as start playing rock and roll whether it begins with elvis presley or or whoever black people and and i'm quoting uh decide it wasn't for us so how did how do we how did we get from this point of of the music being a black African American music to especially with heavy rock not many black people at all? Um, I would say respectability politics. So back in that time when it was kind of um, civil rights post civil rights era, when you had people like Chuck Berry, BB, um, you know, even I was about to say BB King, but other black uh, male guitarists. Mm-hmm. Uh, who were playing blues or like a you know the uptempo rock and roll? Um, there was a, a social change, a political change within um, the states where black people were like, okay, if we're moving to the north, from the south to the north, or we're integrating within whatever you know uh, city town we live in, there has to be a certain. They were very concerned about what white people would think of them. Um, they were very concerned that they had to blend in and be quiet and and have an air about them so white people who were a little leery at this new integration would say, oh, they're just like us. They're polite and they're this and they're that and they're this. So listening to, 
you know, rock and roll music, something that was a little faster and harder um, than, uh, or, you know, guitar-based music, that was really perceived as music that you listen to if you want to party, if you want to get drunk, you know, um, it was not seen as acceptable music for a respectable black person to be listening to at that time. So even though, you know, back in the day when Chuck Berry first came out, um, you know, that he did have a black audience. Um, people really loved the music. They were dancing to the music. Um, but there was also this social pressure to say, you know, if you want to get a job and you want to go to school and you want to be perceived as a safe Negro by the white folks, this is not the music that you should be publicizing that you listen to. You should be listening to whatever is on the radio or go back into kind of black centric music like, let's say, gospel or, you know, some of the soul music or R&B music. And even some of that was being looked upon. Motown was okay for some families, but even in some families, they didn't even want any Motown records. So there really was this pressure within black communities as to what you should be listening to um, because there was a fear that they would be somehow, if they listened to the music, they reacted to the music, they dressed a certain way that pertained to the music culture, that would refle reflect badly on them after they left the home. So, I mean, and also as we see too, I mean, the whole Elvis Presley thing where, um, you know, there was white people that just didn't want to listen to music that black people made. And so by having um, a very handsome young white man playing the music that black folks originated, it was more palatable to those audiences. It was now okay because young, handsome Elvis Presley is performing the music. Um, it would not be okay if a, if a black man or a black woman was singing the same music. And I, I think sociologically speaking, um, you tell me what you think, as a cultural economic minority for, for black people, um, as, as more white people are listening to the music, black people begin to, you know, s circle their wagons and, 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 uh, and say, well, we, as a minority, we need, you know, something distinctive. And it gets to the point where music becomes an important point of a cultural identity. Oh, definitely. Um, I think, you know, you, you have the late 60s, early 70s protest um, culture where um, someone like Richie Havens, who just passed away a couple of days ago, mm. where they were able to create music that um, had a, a, a big social message, you know, a huge social message, just not within the black community, but it translated towards all communities. So, I would argue that in that era of music, in you know late 60s, early 70s, the peace, love, and freedom, you also had a number of funk bands um, mm -hmm. who were able to create this music for black people that was actually quite militant in the, the lyricism that people were like, you know, um, this, is, this is talking about my experience as a black person. Um, for some strange reason, after that era, it kind of went, well, you had hip-hop. Early hip-hop did a bit of that. But now it's kind of retreated where those politicized messages are no longer that popular or even accepted anymore. Uh -huh. um, uh, you write a little bit about, uh, for certain, you, you write quite a bit about Fishbone, I, one of my favorite bands. But... Um, 
about for some of these uh, black rock bands, and I, I think this is true even for for reggae, where Bob Marley had a problem with this, where or he discussed it, where you they have they want to reach a black audience, but they're only getting a white audience. Yeah, and you know there was one of my interviewees, um, Tamar Kali, was telling me that in she grew up in New York, and she was saying back in the day, there's also like you know. Black people, she said, are very cynical in terms of live music. They don't want to spend the money to go into a club um, or even buy an album um, unless they know that the musicians are, like, top-notch. Like, they're kind of getting something that's unique and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a real reluctance in terms of going to shows where it was maybe a, predomin- a predominantly white audience um, they didn't feel comfortable. And there was always kind of this consternation in terms of, oh, you know, these people are taking our music or this isn't for me. I feel like I'm being pushed out. And there's a big, you know, there's a long history of that, you know, within Harlem in the 1930s and 40s where, you know, what, what was once black, you know, once were once thought of, of black clubs where they were playing jazz mm-hmm. and, and whatnot Went, once the white people from downtown started going up to uh, Harlem, the black owners were like, hey, these people are bringing in money. You know, they're buying drinks. There's, you know, if I'm if somebody's selling weed there, they're buying our weed. So they were started to cater towards the downtown white audiences going to these jazz clubs. Um, simply because for economic reasons, which also made the black folks that lived in those areas who wanted to go out on a Saturday night made them more reluctant to do so. Um, you know, there was a certain power um, that was, you know, given towards economics. And so they felt, well, you know, I don't really want to go because now the black owner is going to treat me like a secondhand citizen because he's got all these white people in who are have more money, who are going to spend more money than I than I can afford. So I think that that is something where has kind of translated to um, today's situation where I went to see, um, uh, oh, geez, I can't remember the name. But actually, I did go see Fishbone a year ago when they came to Toronto. And there was hardly any black people. It was sold out show, hardly any black people in the audience. Um, And that will continue. Um, there's also, again, you have resistance of people thinking, oh, only white people go to see Fishbone, mm-hmm. that, you know, white people like them, so I can't like them anymore. So you still see that issue in terms of who supports what. And even though Fishbone is a very, I, I would say that their um, <clears throat> lyrics are very politicized in terms of telling their story and telling mm-hmm. the hardships of what it's like to be a black man um, within their lives. It's not being heard because I don't like I, I, I was standing in the audience wondering, are people understanding what they're saying? Um, are people like it's servitude is one of my favorite songs. Are they understanding what they're saying in servitude or are they just bouncing to the music? And this is a chance for them to stage dive. If more black people were in the audience, would they understand what um, Angelo is saying in servitude and would they walk out of the theater I'm thinking, geez, you know, I'm going to think about that a little bit more. I'm going to think about my life and and society. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, even 
some of Fishbone songs are, you know, they're, they're very, um, you know, funkadelic. Some of their songs. I mean, I, I know they have a lot of metal and punk, but they they play quote unquote black music sometimes. Yeah, I mean, no, they they definitely do. It is black music. I think out of if anyone ever says that metal or punk, you know, should not be played by black folks, that we just we don't have the you know intellectual capacity to do it. They need to listen to Fishbone, and they've been doing it for over twenty years. It's the 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 merging of genres that that band puts together. Mm-hmm. It's it's seamless and it makes sense. Well, and your argument is right on as well. I mean, rock is a is a black music. I mean, from the beginning. And so to say that any black folk shouldn't play rock at all, it just it doesn't make any genre. It doesn't make sense, really. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And I I was at a conference actually a couple of weeks ago, um, a heavy metal and popular culture conference in Ohio. And there was a debate about this because they said um there was one person who said he argued that heavy metal wasn't is wasn't considered metal until all the blues influences were mm. eradicated from the music mm. which i found offensive quite frankly mm-hmm. and i and you know and and i actually put up my hand and i said excuse me <laughs> you know because <laughs> i said that doesn't make any sense to me if you listen to you know um black sabbath um mm-hmm. is known as if not the first one of the first heavy metal bands of all time mm-hmm. they have you know openly said that their music is based on African American blues music. And even to this day, you're still hearing the tonalities, um, of African American blues music and some bands that are putting out music today. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make any, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Led Zeppelin, of course, was one of the greatest blues bands ever. Yeah, and Led Zeppelin really, I don't know, I mean, honestly, this is something where my knowledge is a little bit dim, but I do know that when you talk to um, African-American cultural theorists about Led Zeppelin, that is one band that they're, I mean, they just hate them. There was something in terms of the appropriation, the cultural appropriation of blues and jazz within their music that was not, that was frowned upon. If you get someone like even early Deep Purple or Black Sabbath, I think everybody can agree that, yeah, man, they're the, they're the best. But with Led Zeppelin, there was always some kind of consternation in terms of how they appropriated the music. I don't think that they were very willing to admit how much blues influenced them or how much mm. jazz influenced them. Mm-hmm. So that has always been seen as a stick, uh, a, you know, a sticking point for a number of cultural theorists. Mm. Um, uh, discuss please the only one syndrome. Well, basically, you know, over years, like for, I start, it started off with my own kind of, thing where I, I it was something that I'd always wanted to talk about because I had noticed that um you know when I went to a show especially back in the grunge era days in um in the 90s where my 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 uh, best friend and I would always we go to shows four or five times a week if there was another black person there I was always kind of had this thought where part of me wanted to go over and say hey what's up and then the other part of me was like no, I don't think that's a good idea. You want to, it was, it's all about kind of like, I guess the interdynamics of black people within a, a predominantly white scene. In some ways, I believe that because there's so few um, people, black people who are into, um, especially the extreme music scenes, that, 
you know, it would be great to build a friendship and a camaraderie. But then you have to ask yourself the question, why would you want to build a friendship with somebody based on the color of their skin? So this chapter kind of looks at that and, and, and really, and then I found out through talking to other people that there's this whole political thing where some black people like being the only one and they are like the fact that their white friends have accepted them and will bring them to this show. And they, and there's a level of resentment when they see another black person there. So it's this weird kind of, um, you know, dynamic within the metal scenes that I, I wanted to talk about. And there must be also this awareness that, and again, based on, on your chapter, say you're you're a black person and you look across the room and there's another black person. And if you were to start talking to each other, there must be this awareness that all the white people in the room are going to think there's a conspiracy going on. Exactly. And that is and that is a problem, too. It's like, you know, it's I mean, that's happened to me on the workplace where if a bunch of us are standing behind around somebody's desk. Um, you know, there's always somebody who has to say something like we're, re- you know, we're getting ready to burn down the whole building. So and I think that there is a resentment. I mean, I don't know if people really care, but there is that concern. I know that that there is a concern where if, you know, you roll in a pack of five or six people, then white folks are going to get nervous. And I think that there is that concern, which is why the the dynamics between two black strangers at a show is always kind of fraught with tension or uncertainty. I mean, you, you even say that you even write that, that you've looked across at another black woman and you just get a stare like, don't you dare come talk to me. Exactly. And I and that has happened um, several times. And, you know, when I was working on this book, it was very important for me because I was still writing. I mean, I was still like working as a music journalist. So I was going to a lot of shows um, and I needed, you know, interviewees. And, um, you know, I would go up to or I would, you know, think about approaching somebody and you get that look like don't even think about it because they don't want to be. It's like they want to blend in. And if one black person is talking to another black person, all of a sudden they don't blend in anymore. And that could mean trouble for them, ridicule, you know, whatever paranoid thing that they're thinking. So, you know, it is, I mean, it was interesting to me because it seems very simplistic on some ways, but it's actually very complicated in terms of we need to build a community and we need to let the younger generation of black kids who are listening to the same music as their white friends or non-black friends are listening to at school we need to let them know that they can do whatever they want to do and always and they should feel accepted or feel like they're just another person at a show. But on the other hand, there are also these dynamics where we're con- constantly concerned about what is that? What is the white people going to think? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that has to stop. What do you mean when you write that black women are policed? I believe your chapter on, on body image and such. Yeah, I believe that, you know, in terms of what we see in popular culture and even the discussions that black women are having within our communities on websites or even, you know, in the in, in the real world, that how one person presents themselves, it's always seen to reflect the entire community. We will, I mean, Beyonce is a great example in terms of everything that woman does, someone's got to say something about it. Or they will say, or Michelle Obama, for instance, she's got a big butt. Oh, well, she's an animal. 
or and then black women will then say, oh, my God, you know, um, you know, the black, you know, black women, we have to watch our, our butts because somebody criticized uh, Michelle Obama or her muscular arms or, you know, and, and the media is pointing towards body parts specifically to, on black women. And that are always, there's always negative connotations. Forget about weight. You know, every woman has an issue with weight in terms of the, how the media perceives women. Um, but when it comes to certain body parts, it is very policed by not only within our communities, within our black communities, but that paranoia within our black communities is based on um, popular culture and media and how they feel that they can um, dissect what we look like and how that dissection always goes back into something negative, animalistic, which then um, hints at your intelligence, your social worth, your social cachet. So I think in terms of the book, like I, I use the example of the Venus Hottentot, because to me that was the first kind of public um, and well-known um, example of how the body parts of black women were scrutinized and used, you know, and looked at in a very scientific analytical way. And unfortunately how that view of this woman has been, um, you know, how it translates through society, how we're still having issues where we are more scrutinized. Our bodies are more scrutinized than anyone else. Do you think? Do you think uh, uh, even more? What What are the differences between how, say, white women are scrutinized and objectified than black women? White women are not con- not usually generally um, compared to animals. Mm. Um, they are not. Their intelligence is not questioned. Um, there's also in society the white aesthetic. The white female aesthetic is seen as the norm. Um, above any other woman from any other um, culture, there's always this um, need to uh, to I guess aesthetically um, familiar similarize yourself to the white woman, the the weaves, the hair, the long hair, the straight hair, which as a black woman I certainly don't have and never will have. Um, there is this we are told sometimes consciously and subconsciously that we have to conform to the white woman ideal. Um, so to me, that that's it. And I think anybody I mean, it's something that is just straight up <laughs> completely. It, it, it really is an issue. It really is an issue. The natural, quote unquote, natural beauty that black women um, have is certainly not seen as beautiful in the media's eye. And that in turn really reflects how we see ourselves and how women view themselves um you know in in within black communities so specifically then how do the women of your study deal with this object of objectification the the heavy metal black women whether it be skin or whoever well for, it, uh surprisingly enough and and um i was very happy that this happened is that the majority of them um are just like it is what it is and they're actually saying you know, F you, this is who I am. Um, and they're finding that these music scenes actually support their individuality, support 
their their passion for wanting to be who they are as people and not based on you know the size of their hips or the size of their bust line one of the things that you know as i got older um there's there's a couple of black women rock musicians that for me embodied that ability to have complete control over their image uh complete control over their sexuality and and a lot of it had to do with the music that they were listening to or the music that they were performing the loud aggressive angry music made them allowed them to show that side of themselves and to also say again f you this is who i am i would i argue that there is more there's more allowance and ability for black women to be to be individuals within um extreme musical scenes versus popular culture um like hip hop R&B soul you know the music that is played on top, pop 40 radio there's more of an emphasis and a demand in that type of music to look a certain way and also more importantly to look in a way that men um will find them attractive um in heavy metal and hardcore and punk there's more emphasis on the music the attitude the philosophy behind the music it's not so much based on what the singer looks like or what the what gender is the basis don't get me wrong there's still issues but it's not as prevalent as what you find in um music within that popular culture realm mhm and 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 another important part of your that you write about in in chapter 7 um talk about how how the people of your of your study black people black women deal with situations and you give an example of pantera at one point of liking a band liking their music and then realizing hey uh, some of what they're singing about is is pretty racist you know it's it's or sexist as well yeah i mean it, that's that's something that is still There's no yes or no or right or wrong answer. I think that generally it has to do with luckily for me again, um you know, one of the issues with talking about, you know, black people in rock music is that, you know, a gent, you know, there's a lot of people who are going, "Oh, you know, they they want to be white and they're whitewashed and they don't care about they hate themselves, they hate their race and blah blah blah." Interestingly enough, 99.5% of the people that I interviewed for this book were very militant and very proud to be black and knew their history and didn't want to put um they wanted to be seen as individuals first like everyone would, but they also were very proud of their culture and their and their ethnicity. So in that case, when you talked when I talked to people about okay, you know, back in the day I was a huge Pantera fan and then when Phil said whatever he said, it turned me off. The majority of people said I agree with you, it did turn me off too, but they also said but then i um there was i think two people in general who had known him personally who said you know what i felt this way because i was hurt but when i got to know him i realized that this had happened in his life he was very polite to me do i would i completely 100% want to be friends with him i don't know because i don't really know him as a person that well but they were able to give him a benefit of the doubt and maybe look at other extenuating circumstances in terms of um band like or a musician like um Varg Vikernes um from Burzum 
who's had a long history of making not only racist um, statements, but also um, anti-Semitic and homophobic statements. That is something where um, there are some black folks that love Burzum. And there are some black folks who will say, I love the music. It, it, it resonates to me. Um, but then you also have people who are like, I don't not going to spend my money supporting somebody who has no respect for not only my ethnicity, but, um, you know, Jewish people, gay and lesbian people. They just won't do it. But it really it's a very subject subjective decision. Um, you can't demand that because you won't listen to somebody that somebody else shouldn't. So it's a very, it was a very tricky, um, you know, subject to, to, to write about because I have my own convictions as to what I would do and would not do. But I also had to respect the fact that some of the people that I interviewed said, you know, I, I, I really like Burzum. You know, and I, I, I'm all, I'm only listening to the music. I don't care about what he says outside of, making his music and they were also right in their in their decisions to do so so it is a very difficult thing to you know talk about so i think in the end then um the story you tell gets back to you know especially you know the the beginning of rock as a rebellious music and then certain genres whether it be punk or extreme metal where you know one of the main points of these music is individuality and rebellion and the individual trying to find their own space in a society with you know too many of these categories that we're put in um your story is about individuality isn't it yes it is uh-huh. and um, i well, I think it's, it's really, it's really saying that, you know, the, for me, I just felt like I needed that. You, you're always, I mean, you know, we're living in a society and we have probably always lived in a society where, especially for black women, you know, there's so much pressure of, of trying to, well, trying to resist what other people think about us and, and letting that define who we are. The women that I found um, to interview for this book have found that the music scenes that they are into um, helps them overcome that, helps them kind of define who they are as people and gives them the control to do so. And, you know, that was, you know, hopefully the message of the book, which is, using music or using the culture and the community that these music genres have created to see yourself and view yourself as an individual and also to assert your individuality outside of the the pressures that are put on us by the larger society. Well, well, Lena, um, what are you up to now? Are you are you working on a new book? What are you what are you doing? I am getting ready to go to graduate school in September. Oh. In, yeah. in what what field? Um, I'm going to be going to the New School for Social Research in mm-hmm. New York and doing my master's in liberal studies. Uh-huh. Um, and basically, it to get the um, it's an interdisciplinary program, and I will continue doing the work that I'm doing. I do have another book project that I'm you know thinking about, but um, I guess in the and. Hopefully we'll start writing some like, you know, a proposal or a pitch this year. But my main concern is um, getting my master's at this point and we'll continue writing for various um, music publications. Well, um, uh, thank you, Lena, for, for being on our show. It is a, a fabulous book and a, a great interview. Great. Well, thank you very much again for your time. 
You've been listening to a conversation with Lena Dodd about her book, What Are You Doing Here? A Black Woman's Life and Liberation in Heavy Metal, published by Bazillion Points in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.